When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. I love my children. I want them to succeed and thrive. But if their success comes at the cost of someone else, then it is not success. It will have a cost for them, too. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so happy to be back here with you again. And we've got several stories we want to catch up on. We're going to talk about the explosion in Beirut. We're going to talk about COVID-19 relief, the Great American Outdoors Act, the latest press conference regarding the Manhattan District Attorney and the NRA. And then in our main segment, we want to share our thoughts on the Jonathan Swain interview in Mary Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough, about her family, sort of that the family's role in the creation of one Donald J. Trump. So before we get started, we wanted to share two things. One, we'd love it if you signed up for our weekly email. And two, we have new T-shirts in our Tee Public gift shop. 
Beth, you want to tell the people about our new T-shirts? Yes. One of these T-shirts comes at the request of our very dedicated Nightly Nuance family, where we love to talk about Supreme Court cases. And so we have Supreme Court stands T-shirts. Now, listen, this does not mean we endorse every decision of the Supreme Court or even the general direction of the court. It is a nod to how much we love discussing the court's jurisprudence. Okay, so the Supreme Court stands shirts are very fun. I'm excited to get one. The other shirt has that kind of style of a list of names of people that you enjoy. This was Elise's idea. So we have a shirt that says Sarah and Beth and Elise and Dylan and Simeon. So if you love our little team here, it means a lot to us. And you can find those on Public on sale for a couple of days. So head on over. We'll put the link in the show notes. So I would say that the top news story for this week, despite the fact that we're in an ongoing global pandemic and we're still trying to find COVID-19 relief, and there was a hurricane, was a massive explosion in downtown Beirut, Lebanon. Up to a quarter of a million people were left without homes, 135 were dead. And I saw a quote that basically like this was like their 9-11, and it was incredibly, incredibly Tragic. It was a massive explosion from about 2,700 tons of ammonia nitrate that was left in a storage unit on the in the port of Beirut, and seems to be a combination of negligence and lack of government regulation. It's horrific. I'm going to put a link in the show notes from the Guardian that lists several reputable organizations. If you feel called to donate funds to help victims here, you know, food is needed, water is needed, shelter is needed. You can rely on, I think, the Guardian's reporting about those organizations and choose one that feels right to you. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this story in particular is I just think it's a good example of the unseen role government plays in keeping us all safe. And what happens when no one is looking out for safety? And that doesn't mean that the government is perfect. It doesn't mean that sometimes the government plays a role in people not being safe or losing their lives. I just think that we take so much of this regulation that says, oh, you can't store 2,700 pounds of ammonia nitrate um, together in a warehouse near where people live. For granted. And, you know, we there, especially right now, you know, we're about to start talking about the COVID-19 relief and how that's not coming together. And I know there's a lot of distrust in our institutions. But even in the midst of a global pandemic, there are people out there working for the government, doing their jobs, keeping us all safe, enforcing these regulations, laws in place that prevent this type of negligence. And I just think it's important not to lose side of that, because this is the tragic consequences of what happens when you don't have someone or a group of people or laws or a government agency looking out for the public safety. I think that is a devastatingly apt transition to our Congress's inability Mm -hmm. to reach agreement to provide additional relief related to the pandemic. Speaker Pelosi on Thursday was in a heated exchange with Jim Cramer on CNBC, and he said, why can't you just work across the aisle on this with your colleagues? And Speaker Pelosi said, perhaps you mistook them for somebody who gives a damn about governing. They're not a governing party. They don't have interest in governing. And harsh as that may be, (laughs) I've been thinking Mm -hmm. a lot about the 
campaign tactics that President Trump's team is bringing into November and that I'm certain we'll see, we are seeing in Kentucky from Mitch McConnell, we'll see in the Senate and House races too, where you have this framing of a radical left. And whenever I hear that phrase, I think, I don't think radical means what you think it means. (laughs) Um, But also, I don't think you can even imagine what kind of radicalization about government funding is going to happen if you continue to do the bare minimum or not even that. Because the people of this country, as we see so many of our neighbors and friends and fellow citizens lose their homes, lose their apartments, lose their ability to drive a car, lose their ability to get medical care. Ultimately, this will shape the beliefs about what government is here to do for generations. It already has in many ways, but I don't think it's even gotten started compared to what happens if they cannot get this unemployment insurance and eviction moratorium extended. It is outrageous that as Mark Meadows told Political today, we continue to be trillions of dollars apart. And this is something that Sarah and I shared uh, recently with someone who was asking us about the race in Kentucky. You know, the burden of school not functioning is going to fall so significantly on women and women are going to vote. What you saw in 2018 was a drop in the bucket, I believe, of what you're going to see for decades in politics if people don't get it together. You know, this reminds me, my cousin sent me some music from Spotify. My cousin's in her mid-20s. So she sent me music from, I believe the woman's name is Zeewee. The album is called Generation Zeewee. And one of the show, one of the songs is Universal Healthcare. And it's just this, (laughs) this almost like a protest chant. Universal healthcare. Healthcare is a human right. And she's saying things like, I don't even know what a deductible is. Like, I don't know, like, what is going on? Simultaneously, I was having a, a conversation with a friend my age, like this sort of, sort of cool-headed policy debate about universal health care or about Medicare expansion. And I just thought, you're right. Like, all of us, Congress, who's being led by people, again, friendly reminder, not baby boomers, older. Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are in the silent generation. These are people in their late 70s. Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, is not a baby boomer. He is older than that. (laughs) And I just thought, like, oh, we can't see it, can we? Like, we're all up here debating pragmatic changes around the periphery while the younger generation is becoming radicalized. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You even hear it in some of the primary results, right? You see Cori Bush beating Lacey Clay and her saying in her speech, she said, what this says is that we are done with changes at the periphery. We want radical change. And I think you're absolutely right. If they don't get this done, even if they do, the moment like people younger than us, people in their 20s, um, college students facing you know, an absence of government leadership that led them to miss out on their freshman years or sophomore years or having traumatic experiences flying home in March from studying abroad, like all this stuff, like this is going to permanently change what they see as reasonable change, 
their appetite for rapid change. Like, I think you're exactly right. Like, this is this has long term consequences and it already has. Like, if you're 25, you don't want to hear some ridiculous, small minded policy debate about Medicare reimbursements. You want universal health care and you want it now. And it's not and they're right. It's not their job to work out the details. It's Congress's. And the longer they forget to do this, refuse to do it, continue to have debates about freaking Joe Biden and investigations on Joe Biden in the Ukraine, like that check is going to come due in a big way for both parties, I think. Well, they're so untethered to the reality that so many Americans are living that the age divide is getting exacerbated. And I am no spring chicken, as I am Mm -hmm. reminded when I'm listening to things like folklore, which I love. But I recognize, you know, these lyrics are not for me. Most of them, this is about teenage love and everything. I'm getting older. But but I also look at 65, 70 year old lawmakers talking about not wanting to create a disincentive to work. And mm-hmm. I think, friend, you have no Lost connection to mm-hmm. what's happening for people, certainly between between 20 and 50 at all. If you have yep. kids right now who are still living with you in your house trying to attend school, zero people want to sit around and not work right now. You've got to be kidding yep. me. Like, there's just it, there is no relationship to reality. And so if you're even younger than that and you see a government that's left you where you can't go to school, where your parents are stressed out or your parent or your grandparents or whomever is raising you are stressed out about how they're going to mm-hmm. pay for groceries, like the expectation when government is failing as utterly as this one is right now. The expectations for what government should be are going to balloon. You know, speaking of music, I have been so into Lori McKenna because of her new album, but it's made me go back into her catalog, which I love. And she has a song with many other artists about gun violence that that says over and over, you can learn to live with anything if it happens by degrees. It's an amazing song. But it's been so striking to me because COVID hasn't happened by degrees. Mm -hmm. We are out of gradual erosion territory. And with COVID plus hurricanes, plus election interference, plus disinformation, that's another thing that sadly Beirut is an important example of. So many people rush to Twitter, including our president, to make accusations about what caused that explosion before we had any good information about it. And all of this failure is going to add up in ways that are so dramatic. And it infuriates me. It infuriates me that Mitch McConnell's like, well, you know, got to have a got to have agreement between Speaker Pelosi and the guy who signs the legislation. So I'm just going to hang out for now. I don't want to engage in any false equivalency when it comes to this COVID relief bill, because the reality is the House, the Democratic House, passed a bill in May that's been sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk since then. And they know it. He knows it. Mark Meadows is complaining that, oh, well, they're not giving as much. Yeah, friend, because they don't have to. That's how this works. But I do think, and you see it in sort of Congress's approval ratings generally, like while I do think the Democratic Party is in a better negotiating position, this will hurt everybody. You know, the the eking out small wins and this level of polarization is hurting everybody and it's hurting both parties. And I hope that... This gives us a chance to break out of that vicious cycle. Yeah. You know, many people ask us, why do we get these massive bills instead of taking up one proposal at a time? And it is because 
it often takes a massive bill to be able to get everybody something to get their votes together. At the same time, that looks so petty and so small and so bizarre in light of what everyone's living. Just get the Postal Service some money. Just get the schools some money. Mm-hmm. Just get our hospitals some help. Like, just do it, right? And and to be just lost in the drama of whether Steve Mnuchin is being influenced too much by Mark Meadows, I mean, it just makes me want to pull my hair out. Well, it does look like you wanted to to talk about the Manhattan District Attorney and the just-released lawsuit against the NRA because, hey, maybe something some things are shaking loose and we're going to get permanent radical change. Yeah, about 20 minutes ago, we learned that the state of New York, through its attorney general, has filed a lawsuit in federal court to dissolve the NRA, to remove its CEO for cause, and to have all of the money that the NRA is currently sitting on used for actual charitable purposes instead of for allowing Wayne LaPierre and others to to live incredibly extravagant lives. And the suit is filled with details about travel, trips, you know, safari to Africa, $3.7 million in chauffeuring. We're still digesting all of the information that's in this lawsuit. But New York has said this violates our laws about what you can do with a nonprofit and it should not stand. Mad credit to Letitia James, the New York attorney general who's been working on this. And she Listen, she's doing the Lord's work, and I feel like the Holy Spirit is at her back because we all knew this. It's just an industry group. It's just an industry lobbying group, but they exploit and pray and try to use the voices and power of everyday Americans who, look, you can support Second Amendment rights, but these people are using you and your money. And most of the money's flowing from the industry anyway. It's just a lobbying group. And that's fine, but you better act like it and follow the same rules as lobbying groups and not pretend to be some citizen-driven nonprofit. What I think is so important about this lawsuit, because under the law, people who gave to a charitable purpose have to have those dollars fulfill that charitable purpose. It's not like the NRA is going to be dissolved and all that money is going to go into fair housing or something. Mm -hmm. What I hope happens, though, is the exposure that gun rights, like so many other issues in this country, are sold to people in ways that are manipulative and exploitative Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that someone is making a lot of money because they have told you to feel some sort of threat. We're going to talk a lot more about this on Tuesday as we dive into conspiracy theories and QAnon with Mike Rothschild. I cannot wait to share that conversation with you because I think it has tentacles in so many directions that are relevant. But that's what I think this lawsuit does. It holds up for people who make minimum wage or you know, have one income in their households, but have heard that somebody's going to come for their guns and have contributed to this organization. I hope that you're happy that your money was used for private jets. You know, let's be a little bit more suspicious from now. And I'm not blaming those people. Those tactics are effective for reasons. It's not about individual fault here. And I think Letitia James is doing a real public service in exposing that. I think that question is really powerful in conversations about the NRA, in conversations about conspiracy theories, in conversations about the Trump administration or the Trump campaign. You know, I said to my father in a recent email, it just sounds like you're the only thing I hear is be afraid. 
Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. Can you tell me what you're for? Can you tell me the future? This is relevant to our previous conversation. Can you tell me what you're for? Can you tell me the vision of the future that gives you hope? Because if the only message you have for me is be afraid, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I, I, it's like it's at the center of so many problems, of so much of our polarization, is if we can just say, what I hear you saying is that you're afraid and you want me to be afraid. Is that what you're saying? Let's talk about that. Or I don't want to be afraid. I don't feel afraid. And I don't think there's anything to be afraid of. I think I can be concerned and I can be clear eyed about the problems facing our country, facing our society. But I will not operate out of fear. And so unless you can tell me values, priorities, policies that motivate you to a hopeful future, then I'm not going to engage in fear mongering. And because I just it's it's this through line through so many of these issues. Or look, even, I'm afraid too, but I don't believe this person, this organization, this idea is a savior that meets my fear. Mm -hmm. I believe what meets my fear is a vision for a hopeful future, is one foot in front of the other, is one small contribution at a time, is staying connected with my friends and family. And anything that tells me, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, and here is the answer for you, I think Mm -hmm. that is a lie. And I think that's a lie designed to take my money most of the time. Yep. Or my attention. So at least someone can profit off my attention, which is what lots and lots of people are doing right now. Well, we wanted to touch on one positive act. Now that we've thoroughly criticized the United States Congress, (laughs) uh, we want to praise them for their good work, because we try to be fair here. Um, President Trump just signed the Great American Outdoors Act into law. This will provide up to $2.9 billion in funding for land conservation and national park maintenance. And I get that it is hard to hear that $2.9 billion is going out the door for national park maintenance at a time when we are concerned about people being able to pay their mortgages. And I struggle with that tension, too. At the same time, I think that when you look at everything going on in the world, being able to take care of our land, ensure that we have national parks as places for people to experience some kind of actual grounding is critically important. This was bipartisan legislation that passed in June in the Senate, 73 to 25, passed 310 to 107 in the House. Quite an accomplishment, really, given how polarized the House is right now. Yeah, I'm thrilled with this legislation Our family uses the national parks quite a lot, and it's something we're, you know, passionate about. And you can see the lack of maintenance in so many parks across the country. And I think that prioritizing this, especially if all of our best options is going to be outdoors, you know, we're evolving. Apparently, all of America bought a camper. So I'm so glad that we're going to have money to repave all the parking lots and the national parks that are going to need it after the weight of all these staycation economy campers that have been purchased. Um, I just think it's great. I think it's if we all can just take a minute to breathe and think, oh, my gosh, there is a thing that that we all agree on, which is our national parks are important. And look, you know, I can already hear the emails being typed out. Yeah. When they're not trying to run oil pipelines through them. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I'm here. I know. But we have got to take wins when we can take them, even if no Democrats were invited to the signing ceremony, whatever, let them be petty. We got the money for the national parks and its maintenance, and that's incredibly important. 
Next up, we are going to hear from our dear friend, Tamala Blaylock, about what suffrage means to her. What suffrage means to me, Tamala Blaylock, Alexandria, Virginia. Suffrage means violence. It's the violence when white women deracialize the term women and use it generally. It eradicates the existence of womanhood of anyone who isn't white. Therefore, if phenomenon only occurs to white women, then these are the only women who matter. What's my favorite example? Suburban women voters. By that, we all mean white suburban women voters, even though the suburbs, particularly in the Midwest and the South, are incredibly diverse spaces full of all types of suburban women. Veronica Chambers has a book coming out called Finish the Fight. And in it, it elevates the women whose work and whose erasure was used and then they were betrayed for the 1920s suffrage. These women include Ida B. Wells, who was told to march in the back, but she was not about that life. Mary Church Terrell, co-founder of National Association of Colored Women. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Juno Franklin Pierce, Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, Elizabeth Piper Inslee, Mary McLeod Bethune. Indigenous women, including Mary Louise Batten No Baldwin and Set Lafleche Tibbles. Latina women like Jovite Dar and Chinese immigrant Mabel Pingwali who was also not helped by 1920s, also because there was this ugly other thing called the Chinese Exclusion Act in effect. No, these black and brown women would not get the right to vote or have the government truly enforce their right to vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But what can we do moving forward? How can we make the centennial meaningful. So if you are a woman, particularly a privileged woman, who's not so much concerned about your right to vote, being disenfranchised, your ability to serve on a board of directors, your just right to express your quote unquote womanhood in all its full glory, make sure that when you advocate for anything as it relates to women empowerment, that you think of the most significantly oppressed woman you can. If you need help, picture an indigenous trans woman with a physical disability. Now, when she has full rights to express herself in every American way we can think of, perhaps we are actually close to being able to celebrate that this is a country where women have rights. But up until then, we've had a lot of fascinating white women phenomenons, and it's time for us to be truly, truly female warriors for all women of America. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. 
Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Beth, one thing we wanted to talk about this week is the Jonathan Swan interview with President Trump on Axios for HBO. It was everywhere. It was everywhere because uh, the president's performance was not awesome. Meanwhile, I have been reading and finished Mary Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough. So it felt like there was a lot of crossover, including which I thought was really an interesting choice because Mary Trump spends a lot of time on her grandfather, Fred Trump's dedication to Norman Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking and how that sort of infects the Trump family. It becomes this this dedication to a, a positive picture that probably doesn't exist in reality. And that's how Jonathan Swan kicked off the interview. This idea of does your dedication to positivity serve anyone in the middle of a global pandemic? I thought that was such a smart way to begin the interview. It might help for a second to just talk about sort of the purpose of watching an interview like this or reading a book like Mary Trump's. For me, I am something a galaxy away from over trying to get into the psyche of the president or read about the palace intrigue amongst the people who work around him. Like, I just am done with all of that. Because you were going to read John Bolton's book and then you decided not to, right? I did. I just... I feel like I don't have any questions that can be answered by that stuff anymore. 
I have mm-hmm. my answers, right? I understand how he operates. I understand how the people left in the West Wing operate. And I'm not going to get new information that changes any decisions for me from that kind of stuff. And it just makes me feel depressed and annoyed. And it takes me back to some of the ugliest stuff that I've ever seen in my personal life. So then I get annoyed and depressed on a personal level, and it's just not good for me. So the purpose for me in spending the 37 minutes or whatever with the Jonathan Swan interview was twofold. One, I saw such praise of the way Jonathan Swan conducted the interview that I wanted to see that. Uh, And I do really like him. If you don't follow him on Twitter, he's someone who I find to be extremely credible and precise in the way that he reports. So I wanted to see him. And secondly, I wanted, if I could have it, And I think I got this from this interview, actually. Some help understanding where Trump's supporters are right now, Mm. especially as it relates to COVID. Because I have heard over and over the, well, we only have more cases because we test more and have been baffled, like mystified that that sentence comes out of anyone's mouth ever. And I felt like this interview at least helped me understand what they're getting at, what they think that means and what I'm supposed to take from it. So I Mm -hmm. did get some useful information that informed some actual things in my life from watching that interview. And I, I would love to hear how you would summarize, like, the purpose of reading Mary Trump's book, which I'm reading to. I'm about halfway through. Well, I... Missed my calling. I would have totally been a forensic psychologist. I think why people do the things that they do is endlessly fascinating. Even someone we've all spent so much time with as the president. And in particular, I've always wondered, like, what happened with his mother? As a mother myself, you know, I think that those kind of questions are really interesting to me. I'm sort of also fascinated with, like, the parents of Elizabeth Holmes and Billy McFarland. Like, I just, how do you create someone like this? What choices were made um, in his parenting that led to this level of narcissism or this lack of empathy or this, the compulsive lying? And so I just think that's interesting. And I, you know, I learned a lot in this book, and I think it left me with a lot of empathy for the president. I know that is shocking. And you know what? Some of these interviews leave me with empathy for the president. Let me explain how. In Mary Trump's book, she spends a lot of time on what happened with their grandmother, also named Mary Trump for extra confusing confusing layers here. Donald Trump was the fourth of fifth children, and his mother experienced really terrible complications from her youngest son's birth. So the son was nine months. Donald was two years old. And she had these terrible, she was bleeding. She had all these terrible complications. She ended up with a radical hysterectomy. Her estrogen bottomed out. She got osteoporosis and she just struggled with like breaking bones and all the repercussions of that throughout the rest of her life. But during those particular complications, she just disappeared. I don't think she was a terribly great mother to begin with, but then she was gone. And he was two. And the father, Fred Trump, is just, I mean, Mary Trump calls him a psychopath. He had no empathy. He was cruel. He would pit his children against each other. He was even like that sort of positivity with his wife. Everything's great, right? Everything's great, right? She's suffering from all these health complications. So you can just envision, especially, you know, as a mother myself, this two-year-old whose mother is gone, has no support, has no one to comfort him, no one to tell him it's okay to be sad, okay to be scared, um, just gone. And I 
and continued to be gone and still had no support and still had, you know, was only looking for the approval from somebody who only responded positively to this sort of quote unquote killer instinct. And it broke my heart. It did. It made me really, really sad. You know, part of my values as a human being is I try to remember that everybody at some point was a baby in their mother's arms. And even him. And I just it did. It made me sad for him. And I can't, you know, that doesn't obviously condone or excuse anything he's done. But I don't want to lose my humanity by forgetting that this man is human. And at one point he was a child who was scared and there was no one there to comfort him. And so now he perpetuates that on children at the border and children who now have don't have parents because of COVID. And it just it's this vicious cycle. And so I think there's just a part of me that's driven to think. Like, what feeds this? Is there any way to disrupt it? If we can find out what happened, can we prevent it from happening from somebody else to somebody else? And the empathy in the interviews is just so much. You hear, <laughs> and this goes with the book, too. You They create these environments, and when and when you're filled with, you're filled with lackeys and yes, man. And you can hear his, like, sincere confusion. Like, and that's why he gets his little charts. Like, no, people are telling me what I want to hear. See? Like, you can see it all over his face that he has been told that everything is going well. And now that is his own fault, without a doubt. He builds those teams. He fires people who are disloyal. He doesn't want to hear the truth. And he creates a prison of his own making. But, like, you can just see it in those interviews when when John this one was like, what people? Who? But, like, he just builds this this environment and you you just want to be like can you see how bad this is for you can you see how confused like perpetually confused and frustrated you are because you don't allow an iota of objective truth into your world it's just it's so so toxic and so tragic and i you know people are dying because of it and i you know i guess i just feel this drive to try to figure out the intricacies of that. I'm not sure if it's healthy or positive, but I did find the book interesting. And I saw so much of what she talks about in the book bubble up in that interview. I'm probably going to need your help creating a cogent thought out of the things that are connecting in my brain right now. My therapist talks a lot recently about the overview effect where NASA and its astronauts describe how it just changes you fundamentally as a person Mm. to look at Earth from space. The blue dot. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that. I thought about it a ton as I read Anne Helen Peterson's upcoming book, Can't Even. We were fortunate to get copies of that in advance. And I read it feeling for the first time like I understood myself as part of a cohort instead of just as a person living my life. It gave me that sense of the overview effect to hear my generation described so precisely Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to hear and to understand that all these decisions that I think I made for myself, like I sort of did, I certainly have uh, both fault and credit and all sorts of in-between responsibility for where my life is now. And also, here is the context in which all of that was created. And and I didn't choose that context. And so it was it really gave me that overview effect of feeling. I have a sense of that, too, reading Mary Trump's book about seeing the president more as part of his cohort and mm-hmm. especially the description of how he fixated on television, because that was 
that was a new convention for him. That helped me understand him differently and not just understand him, but understand the people who support him. I mean, that's, again, what I find helpful here is thinking less about Donald Trump and thinking more about Trumpism and thinking more about the people who have so wrapped their identities in Trumpism that they really struggle to connect with people like me on anything else. And those generational elements help me a lot understanding that, yes, Donald Trump has made a lot of these choices and also he didn't choose the context in which he made them. And that has significantly influenced him from his family to his age to the fact that, you know, I think it's interesting to hear how provincial this family has always been, that Fred Mm -hmm. Trump rarely left New York City, that they were just not interested in life outside of being landlords. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that is a that is a shaping i think a lot of people who are hardcore trump supporters have that provincial shaping as well and that's something you and i advocate for right we want people to be really plugged into their communities and the lives in front of them and at the same time like we've got to have some sense of the bigger picture and some ability to see what lies beyond your block. Right. And it's just that that kind of overview effect keeps coming up for me as I read this information and and watch this interview and think about the president. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I think there's so much generational stuff going on here. I think there's so much just that limited vision. That's what I see when he when he's in those moments of confusion, that just limited vision. I think you're right. I think that appeals to a certain aspect of personality, generation, geography, economic background, a million different things to his supporters. And, you know, I want to understand that. I'm just never going to turn from information. Now, I'm not going to spend my life reading the palace intrigue ones. But if I feel honest curiosity, even about his personal life, like, I don't know, I just feel like sometimes learning more about it isn't is a, you know, we always say pursue your curiosity. And I am curious, like, how do you end up like that? Um, and I felt like she really offered some some insight into that. And the other part of the book that I thought was really interesting is the sale of Fred Trump's business. So there's Trump management, the, the landlord business the father built that was incredibly successful. And then there's Trump Inc., the Donald's business. And they sold it quickly and at a loss because he needed the money, apparently. And I thought that was so interesting and and so such an insight into that family as far as like sort of who steers the ship and the the way privilege because they're provincial and they're limited, but but you and I kind of guess I thought that the father's business was sort of only moderately as successful, much like Trump's, but that was not the case at all. It was a multi million dollar. They had tons of money, even if the father was sort of notoriously cheap. That changed all the siblings' lives, and just watching the role money has played. You know, Mary Trump spends a lot of time talking about like that's the only that's the only thing of value. And like watching how that infects everything and that privilege and the and the and the access to resources and the way you can pull back those resources to control your family members, like it was a lot. I think another overview effect that I am working to experience in my life is this real examination of 
why I have gravitated toward conservative principles, because I did not grow up. I grew up in a religious household insofar as we were at church every time the doors were open and I was exposed to a lot of evangelical stuff. But my family had a much more, you know, mainstream faith than what I hear from a lot of our listeners and certainly what I see in the people who support the president in in huge blocks. So I've been trying to think a lot about what has made me uh, defensive of the accumulation of wealth, what has made me think as I do mm. about resources and tax policy and things like that. And so something else I found of value in Mary Trump's book, and, and I do want to footnote I feel a little weird about Mary Trump's book. I have some ethical questions. Parts of it feel a little icky to me. But something that was very valuable, that is very valuable in it to me, is hearing her cogent description that Fred Trump's money. So it's not that Donald Trump is a self-made businessman. I don't think many people believe that anymore. I think we have a lot of good information that that wealth really came from his father. But his father's wealth really came from the federal government. Yes. And, and I think that that is an, an incredibly important point as we continue to talk about the role of government. And especially as we see that that graduated expectation from generations younger than you and me, Sarah, about the government, we have to understand that like the wealth in this country has been made by and large by the government. And that really changes my perspective on on how that wealth ought to be held and used. Um, I want to share in the show notes the wealth shown to scale graphic that you sent oh me, Sarah. It's remarkable. And, and it really singles out Jeff Bezos, both because it is worth singling out Jeff Bezos now and then mm-hmm. for his level of wealth, which, again, has been contributed to enormously by the federal government. And not just indirectly, but in some pretty direct ways. But I also think it is helpful in seeing, it's infuriating, but helpful in seeing in a very tangible way, right in the palm of your hand, how money that has been made through governmental opportunity, government contracts, has come to sit in so few hands. And maybe that makes me a radical leftist at this point, but I want to be clear-eyed about what's going on here. And I I like that Mary Trump's book is very clear-eyed about how the Trump family came to have soap and steak and wine and universities. On the front page of the New York Times website is an examination of what went wrong, how did the United States do so badly at COVID-19. And one of the first things they talk about is this myth of individualism. And I don't feel like there's any space that that infects our perceptions of wealth, the lack of empathy, or the the sort of cruelty is the point narrative that we see throughout Trump and throughout Trump supporters. Uh, again, if this makes me a leftist or whatever you want to call it, I just think individualism is a cancer. I really do. I think the idea, and I think it is an, antithetical to my faith, um, to what I have been taught um, through the words of Christ, this idea that we are all on our own and bootstraps. And, and I think you see less and less willingness to believe in that and perpetuate that. And this idea that it's empowering when it is the opposite. It is the opposite. It cuts you off from the only real power in a democracy, the only real power in a relationship, the only real power within your faith, 
which is the strength and capacity and love and encouragement and connection and resources that you have from other people. And the myth of an individuality and wealth is a lie because wealth is always built on those types of connections and networks. And who can get you into the to the um, tax benefits or the grant writing or the, you know, whatever it is. And I, I you know. That part in particular, yes, I totally agree. It's it's infuriating to read about how, you know, all this this investment was basically tax benefits and he was getting paid by the federal government or he would screw up. The father would screw up and invest in a wrong place and he still wouldn't any lose any money because it was all the taxpayers footing the bill. And it's like we say even even the way we talk about it, tax dollars, we remove the the real cost, the people from that equation, it becomes this sort of objective pot. Well, it's not an objective pot. It's our money. And it's like the idea that any sort of responsibility when it comes to this money is really just about cutting government funding to the people who need it, who the people paying into the system, while the people at the top, listen, I could just, I could go off about this for a while. I had a conversation with a group of friends and I said, I'm just really worried about the rolling evictions. And one of my friends responded, well, what about the landlords? And I thought, what about the landlords? <laughs> you mean the landlords that are benefiting from the mortgage interest tax deduction? Like, I don't, I don't want people to have fear, experience financial instability, landlords or tenants. But financial instability is not housing insecurity. They're not the same thing. And I just think it's that, well, they've, you know, the, the, they bought the buildings and they deserve to be paid. It's like you just invest everything and invest the way we talk about so many things in this country. And I really hope that is shaking loose and the scales are falling from our eyes. And you're right, like those websites where you just have to sc- scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll that through Jeff Bezos wealth. So you can get an idea of what we're really talking about. Is helpful. And I hope that I hope we keep having this conversation. And if examining the, the way that the Trump family built their wealth, which is certainly relevant, you know, sometimes presidents are the best way to illustrate these things, then I want to see that trend continue. What I think is so difficult in that conversation that you're having with your friend, what about the landlord? The landlord is more relatable to your friend mm-hmm. than the tenant and is more relatable to your friend than Jeff Bezos. Right, 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 right. And I, I give Senator Warren a lot of credit for advancing this conversation in in very analytically sound ways, because I think that for so long, at least part of my belief system has been formed around the idea that, yeah, you should be able to build a business in this country and have a nice lifestyle. But having a nice lifestyle can mean something dramatically different than the levels of wealth that are now, Mm -hmm. in my view, the big problem in this country. And honestly, the other thing that has changed me on this topic is is traveling with you so much around the country, because I feel like we have seen such a spectrum from poverty to extreme wealth in our travels. And, And you can't be unaffected by that. You know, I was listening to Start Here this morning from ABC, which I mentioned on the Nightly Nuance as well. It really touched me. And Brad Milkey, the host of Start Here, was interviewing a woman. I think her name was Shelley. And she was talking about the decisions that she's going to have to make if Congress does not extend that $600 unemployment benefit. And when they 
finished the conversation, Brad Milkey thanked her and he said, I don't know if it's any consolation, but I think this will be very eye-opening for a lot of people. And she said, thank you for making me feel useful today. Oh. And I um, thought at that moment... It's unlike me to get choked up about things like this while I'm talking. But um, I thought in that moment, Shelly can have all my money. You know, like, <laughs> I don't need anything. Um, and, and so that's the reaction, right? Like when you start to dive into these realities, it does feel like, oh, because I know where my next meal is coming from and I'm mad that I have to cook it, right? That's how different my life is from mm-hmm. so many Americans. It starts to feel like, well, I am. I need to internalize every bit of this. And I can internalize to some degree, what about the landlord? And I don't know how we continue to expand that overview effect capacity or that potential for imagining that when we talk about taxing the wealthy at higher rates, we don't mean wealthy like you. We mean wealthy like Jeff Bezos. And there is a whole lot of space between the two of you. But but I'm saying this in empathy with your friend because I have been that person my entire life and I'm working really hard to understand why and to understand what the right path forward is. It's very hard. And that to me like illustrates just to tie this back to Mary Trump's book. I think the title of her book is just the best phrase I've ever heard. Too much and never enough. It applies in so many contexts. She introduces it by talking about how that's really what child abuse looks like. Too much and never enough. Mm. And I think that's the phrase for almost every aspect of American life right now, certainly the way we engage with politics and certainly the way I have engaged with conversations about our economy. And again, I just want to say to any like people who work with Republican legislators out there, I love you. Thank you for listening to our show. I am worried that we're not going to have any room for this kind of conversation in the future about what can government actually do well for its constituents because government is not doing almost anything well for all but a very few of its constituents right now. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh 
out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Well, and let me just put a cool-headed, pragmatic spin on, I'm sure, what many will perceive as my bleeding liberal heart. Back to our conversation about nice white parents in that podcast, which is brilliant. We should all listen to it. I have three white boys. I want nothing but the absolute best for them. I love my children. I want them to succeed and thrive. And what I have to remind myself of and what I have tried to form as a sort of muscle memory is that if their success comes at the cost of someone else, then it is not success. It will have a cost for them too. If they live in a world where solutions cannot be found and problems cannot be seen because we have systematically excluded huge segments of the population from solving them or illuminating them for us, then that will come at a cost for them. Their lives will not be as good if I fight for them at the cost of some other child. I believe that. I believe that their life is only as good as the collective's success, as the collective's thriving. I don't want them to sit as adults and feel heartbroken because huge segments of the population are being 
pulled away from their parents at the border or filled with anxiety about climate change or any of that. I want them to live in a world where there is a level of thriving that is just not almost not even visible to us right now. And I don't want that sort of individual to Anne Helen's book, like scratching, clawing their way into the middle class or the upper middle class, right? Like, I just don't want that for them. I don't want that pressure on them. I want them to feel a freedom and a lightness that I think is only available when everybody feels that, you know, like, and it probably sounds naive and maybe it sounds like a dream, but I don't want to claw an opportunity hoard and create this teeny tiny little circle of success for them because I don't think that's not what a, that's not what happy looks like to me. That's not what I want for them. I want them to feel expansive. I want them to see their classmates succeeding and not feel like they're, I, you know, I want them to, to be able to be grateful without that. I know other people have it worse than me. I just want them to be able to exist in a place where it doesn't feel like their success came at the cost of somebody else's. And I don't know if that's available, but I do try to keep that as my my vision, like John Lewis talks about, my vision of the future that seems impossible, but I got a point somewhere and I don't want to claw a tiny sliver of the pie for them because I think that pie will taste bitter in the end. I think that's beautifully said. And I think for the people who are more like me <laughs> in terms of their kind of orientation and worldview, a smaller vision for for us, I think, right now is to just not be too cynical to ask those questions. Mm. I get really blocked in my own head, in my own conversations by a practiced cynicism that I have been led to believe amounts to something like sophistication. And I'm done with that. I really want to be, as we talked about on Tuesday, earnest and open and willing to believe in our capacity to make changes, huge ones, <laughs> and willing to entertain words like privilege and complicity without having to go immediately, oh my God, the social justice warriors. Like I want to, I want mm -hmm. to, I want to sit in the conversation. I won't find, you know, again, saviors. I'm not looking for saviors. Nothing that I have said today means that I think. There is a Bernie Sanders type figure who can lead us to the promised land. OK, mm -hmm. because I don't believe that. Not even a little tiny bit. But I do believe that there is a world like Sarah just described that is available to us if we want it and if we are all willing to contribute to it. And sometimes our contributions need to be just being willing to hear someone like the woman on Start Here talk about what she's going through and and sit with that a little bit and ask, like, what would we be willing to change so that no one has to choose between an apartment and a car payment? Well, that was a characteristically wide ranging conversation, um, <laughs> considering that we set out to talk about the Jonathan Swan interview and the Mary Trump book. I do think we should spend a minute just saying Jonathan Swan did an excellent job, totally lived up to my expectations. And I would love to see 
more conversations, not just with the president, but with people in power, where the person interviewing them is willing to say, what people, what book, what document? That's not what the numbers say. No, 8,000 deaths, whatever, right? Like where they're doing that real-time fact-checking, which takes huge skill. So massive kudos to Jonathan Swan and the whole team at Axios for that Mm -hmm. interview. Uh, We'll put links in the show notes to Mary Trump's book on the wild hair that you haven't seen it somewhere, and you can grab that if you'd like to. We are really excited about Tuesday's episode and our conversation with Mike Rothschild that we'll be sharing on conspiracy theory and why your Facebook and Instagram feeds are lit up with posts about child trafficking. We hope that you have the best weekend that you can. And until next Tuesday, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Ladau, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader. Tracy Putoff. Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.